So this morning we're going to talk about the temple. Now, last week we began this discussion and we did it with the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a tinted area with a kind of a, a fabric wall that was the place where God was deemed to, to inhabit while the Israelites were going through their 40-year camping experience called the wilderness. And so during that time period, God had given very explicit instructions on how the temple was to be made. And when I say specific, I mean down to the size, the material that was to be used, what type of wood to use for the poles, how many poles there should be, the draperies, where the seams should be and how they should be sewn together. How they should be hung from the curtain poles. The dimensions of the courtyard. The furnishings that were to go in it. All of this God not only told them how to make, but God was explicit in saying, do it exactly like I've told you. There are reasons why. Now, as we honor moms on Mother's Day and, and uh, heavens, we honor uh, moms all the time, I hope. Um, but, but today we note that. I can remember growing up, there were times where my mom would tell me to do something. And I would ask a very important lawyerly question. Why? And sometimes my mom would explain it. And sometimes my mom would give the answer that's been going down from generation to generation. Because I told you to. Do they ever say that in China when you're growing up? Did your parents ever say because I told you to? Yes, even in China. God did not tell Moses why it had to be built exactly that way. But he told Moses it had to be built exactly that way. And as we read through the wealth of Scripture, we learn many of the reasons why. God had a central place to meet His people. And that place went with the people. Why? Because there was always going to be only one place where God would meet with His people. And we'll see that as we look through this in more detail today. It was never, okay... Make some tents like churches and stick one every two or three miles so people don't have to walk too far to get to them. Becky and I were in Nashville uh, Friday night for an event uh, at, at my undergraduate school. And one of the things that I was reminded of visiting with some of my, my friends from Nashville is if you go through the valleys in Tennessee... 
about every three miles, you'll see a small little country church of the same denomination with 30 people who go there. And then you go two miles down the road, there's another one with 30 people. And when I was a kid in school studying to be a preacher, they'd send us out to preach at these little churches or to lead singing. Generally, they didn't have me leading singing. But we'd go out there. I did occasionally. Never more than once at any church. (laughs) And we would go out there. And one of the things that I learned was these are families who've been going to that church for generations after generations. Say, why are there churches every two miles? Doesn't it make sense to have a church about every 10 miles or 15? Answer, these churches have been here since before the car. And so you had to have them close enough for people to walk. And the families have just kept going. Well, you think about that with the tabernacle. Why didn't God just say, okay, here's the tent structure. This is the way it goes down. And I want you to build one for about every 5,000 people so that they've got a place they can go worship. No, God did not. God said there's one and there's only one and it's to be built exactly like this. And everyone is to go there because at one place is where I will meet with the people and forgive their sins. And when the tabernacle finished, David, King David, the second king of Israel, first king, Shaul, Saul. By the way, we say Saul because we're wrong. Because we got it from the New Testament, which has the Greek, which says Saul. But that's because Greek didn't have an S-H sound. His name was Shaul. And that's why when Saul went out into the Greek world, he used his Roman name, Paul. His name didn't change. He had a Roman name, three Roman names, as well as a Hebrew name. They just couldn't pronounce his Hebrew name. So when they write it in the Greek New Testament, they write it as Saul because they don't have an S-H sound in Greek. So we're calling King Saul, Saul, but his name was Shaul. So you had King Shaul. He dies and King David, David, becomes king. Now David, toward the end of his life, reaches a point where he says, I want to build a house for the Lord. The tent's long been gone. The Ark of the Covenant still remains. But it belongs in a house of the Lord. And God says, no, you can't build the house. You've not been a king at peace and you've shed so much blood. This is not for you to do. It's for your son to do. So the temple gets built by Solomon... The son of David. David stored up materials and supplies for it. Solomon uh, uh, had the relationships to get more timber and cedars of Lebanon from King Hiram and others. But Solomon builds the temple. Now here's what we're going to do. This is a five-minute video. Five minutes, I'm sorry. It's a long time. But it is First Kings 6 and 7 being spoken with a 
illustration of the temple being built. And I want you to get a feel for the temple of Solomon. So if you'll hit play for five minutes and 11 seconds, unless I get restless. And it came to pass in the 480th year, after the children of Israel were come out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, that he began to build the house of the Lord. And the house which King Solomon built for the Lord, the length thereof was threescore cubits, and the breadth thereof twenty cubits, and the height thereof thirty cubits. And the porch before the temple of the house, twenty cubits was the length thereof, according to the breadth of the house, and ten cubits was the breadth thereof before the house. Fifteen feet. And for the house he made windows of narrow lights. And against the wall of the house he built chambers round about, five cubits high, and they rested on the house with timber of cedar. The nethermost chamber was five cubits broad, and the middle was six cubits broad, and the third was seven cubits broad. For without in the wall of the house he made narrowed rests round about, that the beams should not be fastened in the walls of the house. The door for the middle chamber was in the right side of the house. And they went up with winding stairs into the middle chamber, and out of the middle into the third. And the house, that is, the temple before it, was forty cubits long. And the oracle in the forepart was twenty cubits in length, and twenty cubits in breadth, and twenty cubits in the height thereof. Thirty by thirty by thirty. And within the oracle he made two cherubims of olive tree, each ten cubits high. And he set the cherubims within the inner house. And they stretched forth the wings of the cherubims, so that the wing of the one touched the one wall, and the wing of the other cherub touched the other wall. And their wings touched one another in the midst of the house. And he carved all the walls of the house round about with carved figures of cherubims and palm trees and open flowers, within and without. And the whole house he overlaid with gold, until he had finished all the house, and for the entering of the oracle, he made doors of olive tree. The lintel and side posts were a fifth part of the wall. So also made he for the door of the temple posts of olive tree, a fourth part of the wall. And the two doors were of fir tree. The two leaves of the one door were folding, and the two leaves of the other door were folding. And he carved thereon cherubims and palm trees and open flowers and covered them with gold fitted upon the carved work. And Solomon made all the vessels that pertained unto the house of the Lord, the altar of gold and the table of gold, whereupon the showbread was, and the candlesticks of pure gold, five on the right side and five on the left, before the oracle with the flowers and the lamps and the tongs of gold. And he set up the pillars in the porch of the temple, and he set up the right pillar and called the name thereof Jachin. And he set up the left pillar, and called the name thereof Boaz. And upon the top of the pillars was lily work. So was the work of the pillars finished. And he made a molten sea, ten cubits from the one brim to the other. It was round all about, and his height was five cubits. And a line of thirty cubits did compass it round about. It stood upon twelve oxen, three looking toward the north, and three looking toward the west, and three looking toward the south, and three looking toward the east. And the sea was set above upon them, and all their hinder parts were inward. 
and it was an handbreadth thick, and the brim thereof was wrought like the brim of a cup, with flowers of lilies. It contained two thousand baths, and he made ten bases of brass. Four cubits was the length of one base, and four cubits the breadth thereof, and three cubits the height of it. And on the borders that were between the ledges were lions, oxen, and cherubims. And every base had four brazen wheels, and the work of the wheels was like the work of a chariot wheel. Then made he ten lavers of brass. One laver contained forty baths, and upon every one of the ten bases one laver. And he put five bases on the right side of the house, and five on the left side of the house. And he set the sea on the right side of the house eastward, over against the south. So was ended all the work that King Solomon made for the house of the Lord. Thank you. So, within the framework of that, I, does that give you kind of an idea of what the Temple of Solomon looked like? What he tried to do, and and what he did, uh, had done, was. N- Use the temple to build the same type of structures that were in the tabernacle, the tent, that God had provided in the instructions with Moses. So it had the outer court, it had an inner court for the priests, but then it had the Holy of Holies. The the video that we just saw had between those two big cherubim, the two big uh, angels, it, you could see the Ark of the Covenant. That was not spoken, though, because the, the, the narrator was reading from 1 Kings 6 and 7. And Solomon doesn't put the ark in until chapter 8. In chapter 8 of 1 Kings, Solomon, after the completion of the building and, and the temple, Solomon puts the ark of the covenant in there and the, the, the Lord descends in a cloud and 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 sets up if you look at first kings chapter 8 the, the what solomon has to say is very important solomon said the lord has said he would dwell in thick darkness this is the clouds just appeared but not only the cloud you'll notice that the windows were not windows that enter into the holy of holies it's, it's thick darkness itself, but for the light of the candelabras. I've indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and he blessed all the assembly of Israel. And while all the assembly of Israel stood, he said, Blessed be the Lord. That's the Hebrew name for God that God gave Moses. That's why it's in all capital letters. It's the letters Y or Yod, Hey, H, Vav or W or V, H, Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey. Some people will say Yahweh. Some people don't want to pronounce it. And we don't really know how it was pronounced anyway. But he says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David, my father saying, since the day I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house. And he didn't build one in every city. 
He said, but I chose David to be over my people Israel. And now it was in the heart of David to build a house for the Lord. But the Lord said to David, it's in your heart. And that's a good thing. But it's not your job. By the way, there are like sermons oozing off of every verse of this that we don't have time to read. But I can't digress. Or I have to digress just to tell you. There are lots of good things that may be on your heart to do, but it may not be yours to do. Some people have a tendency uh, to want to do everything they can. Um, but your son, who shall be born to you, shall build the house for my name. And so that's what he's done. He's provided a place for the ark, which is the covenant of the Lord he made with our fathers when he brought him out of Egypt. Now look at his dedication here and then we'll move on. But the dedication is very important. Very important. Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel. He spread out his hands toward heaven. And he said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you. In heaven above or on earth beneath. Keeping covenant and showing steadfast love. Hesed, Dale. To your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You've kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him, what you spoke with your mouth, you fulfilled. Now, therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you promised him. See, when God told David, you don't get to build the house, God did say, but David, I'm building of you a house. And there will never fail to be one of your offspring on the throne. Now, as Christians, this should be sounding an alarm. We should be saying, wait a minute, where's an offspring of David on the throne in Israel now? It's not the prime minister. That's not one of the qualifications to be prime minister of, of Israel. You have to prove you're of the lineage of David. No. We understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. This is another prophecy that Jesus, the King of Kings, who will always be on the throne of Israel and the throne of heaven, that Jesus would be of the offspring of David, which he was, even from the town of David, from Bethlehem. You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons pay close attention to their ways to walk before me as you have, then look at verse 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? We've made this temple, this house for God. Is God really moving into our neighborhood? Is God going to physically live on earth in a house? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you much less this house I've built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant 
praise before you this day. That your eyes may be open night and day toward this house. The place of which you've said, my name shall be there. That you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. And listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Listen in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. Now, within the framework of this, I want to make sure that, that we keep in our brain, and I'll put it back up here, what Solomon says about the temple. Solomon says, may this be the place where you've said your name will be there. May you listen to the prayer your servant offers toward this place. And when they pray toward this place, listen in heaven and forgive. You got it? Let's say it a third time. I don't want it to leave your brain. The temple, your name will be there. Listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward that place. And when you hear the prayer, forgive. Now the reason I say it three times and I'm triply emphatic. First King, go back to the PowerPoint. First King chapter 8, especially those verses that I underlined, 27 through 30. The reason why is because of what happened to the building and the rest of the unfolding of Israel's history vis-a-vis the temple. So that's the temple, that's the dwelling place of God. Israel gets bad kings, they get bad priests, they fumble and mess up and things go bad and sometimes they go rotten. Oh, they get a little bit better sometimes, but they go bad Ultimately, God says, I sense the prophets, you're not doing your end of this and and I'm going to have to bring you to your knees. I'm going to destroy the temple. I'm going to destroy Israel. Jeremiah is the last prophet who talks of this destruction and Nebuchadnezzar comes in with the Babylonians and they decimate the temple. They decimate Jerusalem and they cart the Israelites off, the Jews off at this point. The, this is Judah. Israel's already been conquered. The northern tribes have been conquered. So the Jews, the Judahites, they get carted off into captivity. A hundred years later, with Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel and others, they come back and they begin to try to rebuild a temple. And that temple tries to get rebuilt so that they have a place to sacrifice. And over hundreds of years, they do okay. And then about, oh, 16, 17, maybe 20 B.C., the king of Israel at the time, an Idumean, not really a Jew except by convert, Herod, Herod declares he's going to make the temple massive and beautiful. It's sort of his homage. He's a builder. He's building 
uh, big housing edifices everywhere in his honor. And he decides he's going to rebuild the temple and make it spectacular in Jerusalem. Now, he actually trains the workers and he gets everything in place early and gets the supplies early before they get started because otherwise the people will think this whole thing's a ruse and he's just collecting more taxes. But he gets it and they start building and it builds throughout. It's called Herod's temple. It builds throughout his life. He dies a couple of years after the birth of Jesus, but the building project continues It's been going on, it it doesn't end until about 60 A.D., but it's been going on for 46 years. And it is a massive, massive structure by the time Jesus has an opportunity and throws some money changers out. But the temple, the temple mount itself has got massive courtyards. The temple is huge. I'm, I mean, the, 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 the top of the temple, 15 story building, 150 feet high. The doors into it are like 10 feet, I mean, 10 stories high. They're massive, massive. They've got small doors for people to go in and out. But those honking, big, huge doors are like six, seven stories at least, I think, high. I mean, doors that, that, that would be taller than these walls. So it's this massive complex when Jesus is there. Now, we talked last week about how Jesus is, according to John, the tabernacle. He is the dwelling place of God. And we saw that in John 1.14. And the Word became flesh. And it's translated dwelt, but it means pitched its tent, tabernacled among us. But if we fail to understand what's really being said, we need to see that Jesus is not simply that tabernacle, But He is the temple itself. Jesus Christ is where God dwells with humanity. When we see Jesus, we see the presence of God. Jesus wasn't just a really good guy. He wasn't just a really holy Joe. Jesus is the presence of God on earth. That's why it's such a joke when people come up to him and try to quiz him on the what God said to Moses. He's kind of like, well, I was there first of all. <laughs> that was me. Jesus is God. I was speaking with a, a Jewish friend last night and he was telling me, he says, you know, when, when I grew up, he said... It, doesn't matter what we were doing, where we were, whatever. It was always emphasized to us there's only one God. And that's just in our DNA. And, and, and I think he was thinking in terms of Christianity being the idea that there are three gods. And there aren't. There's one God. I mean, we're trying to understand that God in human brains that 
frankly, are about the size of both of your fists put together. So we don't really... He's, he's revealed Himself to us as best as He can, but He's made it abundantly clear. He is one God. Yet in the midst of being one God, He is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He is three personages within one God. And if you can fully wrap your head around that, then your brain is bigger than mine. Because frankly, I don't see any way a human being is going to fully understand the character and the makeup of a God that is far beyond us. So we're going to do the best we can. But if you read the revelation of John... In chapter 21, verses 22 through 23, it talks about the new Jerusalem coming down. And it makes it clear, in the new Jerusalem, there's no temple. Because the temple is Jesus Christ. We don't need to go find a place to meet with God. God has met with us in Jesus If we are in Jesus, we have met with God. If Jesus dwells within us, we are meeting with God 24-7. But it doesn't just mean as a temple that that's the dwelling of God with us through Jesus. There's more to it than that. The temple is also the place where the sacrifices were made for sin that allow us to approach God. And Jesus made it abundantly clear that Jesus would be that temple. That it is through Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus that we approach God. By the way, as I'm looking at this with you, do you see one of the reasons God said build it exactly this way? You'll see more in a moment. This is why they didn't just put a tent or a temple in every town. Or they weren't supposed to, I should say. Because there's only one place where God is going to be approached through sacrifice. And it's always been that way. This wasn't, Jesus wasn't an afterthought. Jesus was the prophetic fulfillment of the exact instructions God gave for the temple. Jesus is the sacrifice that forgives our sins. Jesus is the reason we can approach God with a clear conscience. Jesus is. And this is why when Jesus goes in and he throws out the, the vendors from the temple in John 2, 13, look at what Jesus says. Um, John 2, 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. By the way, Passover celebrates and honors and remembers what? Those of you of your Haggadah nearby, what? Passover? Release from Exodus, right? This is the um, incipient, if I can use a goofy word, event. This is the seminal event. This is the, the starter of the chain of events that would lead to the tabernacle. 
which then leads to the temple. So that's when Jesus is in Jerusalem and he goes up to Jerusalem for the Passover in the temple. He finds those who are selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers and he makes a whip of cords and he drives them all out. He pours out the coins of the money changers. He overturns their tables. He tells those who sell the pigeons, take these things away. Don't make my father's house a house of trade. Solomon did not build the temple. Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel did not rebuild the temple to be a banking center. The temple is the presence of God. It's the dwelling place, the recognition of God. And the approach to God in the temple is made through sacrifice. And Jesus says this and his disciples, remember it's written, zeal for your house will consume me. That's Psalm 69.9. So the Jews said to him, give us a sign. You show us why. Tell us why you ought to be doing these things. What authority do you have to come in here and be the boss of me? What authority do you have to come in here and decide what goes on in the temple and what doesn't? And Jesus says, oh, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Now the Jews say, it's taken 46 years to build this so far. You're going to do it in three days. But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. When he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he'd said this. And they thought, whoa. Three days and he raises from the dead. Because Jesus is making a claim here. If we go back to the PowerPoint. Jesus is claiming the dwelling of God with humanity is found in Jesus Christ. Jesus is claiming our approach to God is through the sacrifice of Jesus. This is his claim. But it's his reality. Jesus knew the prayer of Solomon. Sorry, folks, I'm going to drive the booth crazy by jumping back and forth. But go back to what I kept saying. This is important. Remember this. And plug Jesus into these statements. In Jesus, we'll find the name of God. And the name of God is not simply a label. It's who God is. It's his resume, his curriculum vitae, his stud sheet. It's who he is and what he does. It's his reputation. In Jesus, that God bless you, will listen in prayer that your servant offers towards Jesus. We don't pray in Jesus' name because it, our parents did. Our grandparents did or our church does. We pray in the name of Jesus or in God's name or in your name. We do it recognizing that God's going to hear the prayers through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I'm not praying in my name. 
Oh God, hear my righteous prayer. I've been really good this week. No, that's the Pharisee Jesus mocked. Jesus said, God's hearing the prayer of the sinner who contritely smotes his breast and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. We turn to God and we pray in his name, not ours. Listen to the plea of your servant and your people Israel. When they pray toward Jesus, listen and forgive. Jesus said, I'm the temple. Y'all are really proud of this really cool edifice. And it's pretty as far as human buildings go. But the real place is me. See, this is the meaning of that Hebrews passage. So if, if you look at the temple picture that I've got up here, and you go in through that, uh, first of all, uh, everybody gets into these, uh, uh, all Jews could be in this little outer court area. You go in through the doors, you've got this inner court, and, and that's called the court of women, and that's where the women got to hang and do. And then you go in the inner court, and that's where the, the, the women were not allowed to go in. Sorry, ladies. And then you go inside those doors, and that's just for the priests who are going in to serve. But inside those doors, in the back, cartoned off in a room by this huge six-story curtain is the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest goes, and he only goes once a year because that's deemed the holiest place of all holy places on earth. It is the place where God would be. And into that Holy of Holies is where the prayers for the people and the forgiveness for the people on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, would be offered by the priests along with the sprinkling of the blood. That's where the Ark of the Covenant would be kept. Although by the time of Jesus it was gone. So this is the holiest of holies and the curtain that separated the holiest of holies from the rest of the temple was split with the death of Jesus. It was torn from heaven top to bottom. And it splits, Matthew 27, 51 tells the story of its splitting. And now what separated the holiest of holies, the very presence of God, from everyone else has been torn away by the death of Jesus. And those walls that separate the men from the women... The Israelites from the non-Israelites, all of those walls in Jesus are brought down. And there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek. Jesus has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. Now you, you may be saying, whoa. Where do you get that from? Well, it makes sense. But it's also in the Bible. 
If you look at Hebrews, a little bit more of Hebrews that we didn't have time to look at last week. Go to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to skip in the interest of time to verse 19. Because of all that we've just skipped over. Since we have confidence, we, you're part of the we when you read this. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. That is, through his flesh. And since we have such a great priest over the house of God, the temple of God. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Why do we hold fast the confession of our faith? Why do we say, I know God is going to hold on to me. I know in spite of everything that God is my deliverer, that God is my confidence, that God is my refuge, that God is my salvation. I know that God stands for me in spite of all of my shortcomings. How do we know that? Because He who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Let's don't neglect meeting together. That's the habit of some people. But let's encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. This needs to be our focus. This needs to be our drive. This needs to be our motivation. This needs to be our understanding. That God is faithful. It's a faithful God who makes a promise over a thousand years earlier to Moses, says you build it this way because it's going to fulfill a purpose for me. It is going to be the prototype. It's going to be the picture of the reality that comes when Jesus Christ comes to human form and sacrifices himself to make a dwelling place for God among men. When Jesus said, in my Father's house are many mansions, I go now to prepare a dwelling place for you. Please hear me. Please hear me. Please hear me. Too many times we and even our wonderful preachers deliver this idea that Jesus is up there with some spiritual celestial hammer and nails constructing heaven for us. Nothing could be further from the truth of what Jesus said. Heaven is already there. God's already present. In my Father's house are many mansions. Not, we're going to make a bunch, we got a good floor plan. 
We've got subdivisions outlined. We just got to get in the sewage. Build some roads. No. In my Father's house, I go now to prepare a place for you. Is Jesus saying, I'm going to the cross? He prepared a place for us in the presence of God, in the house of God, by dying for our sins. That's how he prepared the place. And that's why he told them, and if I go now to prepare a place for you, I will come again, that where I am, there you may be also. And he assured us of a resurrection there. And yes, there'll be a second coming of Jesus. There'll be another layer of fulfillment of that and recognition of that. But we can't lose sight of what he was saying to those apostles on that night. I'm going now. I gotta go prepare a place for you. I gotta go open the door. I gotta tear down the curtain. I've gotta make it where you, by a full assurance of faith, are able to go into the very presence of God with your prayers. Where you can be assured of forgiveness. And then it goes a step further. Because this whole temple concept of Jesus as the temple, Paul takes further and says, do you understand that just as in the temple, the world can see God dwelling, now the temple of God is the body of Christ. It's the church. That temple concept and that's another reason there's not to be 30 temples there aren't to be 30 churches there is one church of the Lord Jesus Christ now it's expressed in a lot of different denominations and it's expressed in a lot of different congregations but there is one body of Christ only one and it's not one for one ethnic group or another. It's not one for one financial group or another. It's not one for one educational group or another. It's not one for one gender or another. It's not one for Jews and one for Gentiles. All of the dividing walls that existed in the original temple have been broken down by the death of Jesus such that we are all there. This is Ephesians 2, 11 through 12. 22, it goes on, but we'll do it fast. I got to get to the points for home. But if, if we don't see this, it's, this starts out with, remember at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh. Paul's writing to the Ephesians here. You were called the uncircumcision by the Jews, the circumcision. Remember how you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. There are the ins and the outs. You were the outs. You weren't part of the brotherhood. You didn't have a hope and, and you were without God out in the world. But now in Jesus Christ, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. He is our peace. He's made us both one. He's broken down the dividing wall of hostility. The temple walls have been broken down. He's abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. You know, you can't come in here. 
that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, making peace, that he might reconcile us both to God. Jew is reconciled to God. Gentiles reconciled to God. How? Through one body, through the cross. We've got nothing to be hostile about. He came and He preached peace to you who were far off, peace to those who were near. Through Him we both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. So we're not Gentile strangers and aliens. We're fellow citizens. We're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus is the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. See, the body of Christ that's the temple of God, the presence of God in this world, the meeting place where we meet God, is now in us as well. We are part, as we are in Christ, of the temple. When Paul says in 2 Corinthians, or actually he does say it in 2 Corinthians 6, but in 1 Corinthians 3.16... When Paul says, don't you know that your body is the temple of God, that you are the temple of God? Actually, 6 is your body. That in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that you're the temple of God? He's, that's the plural you. That's where the southerner should be translating the New Testament. It should be y'all. Y'all are the temple of God. The church is. See, Christ is in you if you are saved. God is in you. That's why you even individually can be seen as a temple. And that's 1 Corinthians 6. But that's this imagery. So when we read about the temple in the Old Testament, it's not just a different thing. It is a proclamation of of the grand saga of what God is about. And so are we today. Points for home. First, these come out of the Hebrews 10 passage. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. You got something in your life, which we all do, that makes you wonder or quiver or shake, it's got you concerned about today or tomorrow. Concerned about your family, concerned about your health, concerned about your job. I don't know what it is, (laughs) but I know what you need to do. It's the same thing I need to do. Cling to Christ. My God is faithful. He will not abandon the work of His hands. And it's not because of me, it's because of Him. So let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. I want to I want to urge you to seek the fruit of the Christian life. I want to encourage you to find the liberation that comes from following Jesus and trusting him over what anything else may tell you. Trust him over what anything else may tell you and follow the Lord Jesus and seek the fruit of that Christian life. Point for home three before we stop. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. We're going into summer. Lots of vacations, lots of trips, lots of things, lots of reasons, lots of events. Um, 
I'm going to commit to you. I'm going to try to be here every Sunday I possibly can. I want you to try to commit to be here every Sunday you possibly can. Please, in this class, every Sunday you possibly can. Because we all have a role in the body of Christ. And I want a chance to encourage you to good works. And I want you to have a chance to encourage me. One of my favorite times of class is when I get here in time to get stuff set up and I get to walk around and talk to folks. Because it's an encouragement to me that you're even here. I love you guys. I want what's best for you. I want to try and fill my role in this. And and I urge you to find your role. Love on the people near you. Pat someone on the back. Uh, give them a word of encouragement today. Be a blessing to people. You know, I don't know them. They got name tags. And if they don't, just say, hey, no name. <laughs> Let me give you a blessing in the name of the Lord. Father, I ask your blessings upon all who hear your word. And I pray that your word will come through some of this message I've tried to teach today. Father, we desperately need you. We need your faithfulness. We need your guidance. We need your forgiveness. We need your protection. We need your love. We need your mercy. We need your compassion. We need your kindness. We need your gentleness. Father, we need you. And may we show you to the world around us who is in desperate need of you as you indwell us, your body, your temple. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, we pray with faith in you. Amen. See you guys next Sunday.